I'm going to tell you a little bit about today's service. It comes from a poem by Mary Oliver called The Summer Day that ends with a question. I'm going to read that to you in just a moment. We're going to have three decades, three different parts, ages of Wellsprings come forward and answer this question and tell me what will you do with your one wild and precious life. And you can follow along up here on the screen the words of this poem. The Summer Day by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me. What else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Miranda? Everyone is always asked as a child and a teenager, what do you want to be when you grow up? Especially now, people are going to want a legitimate answer from me. Lately, there's more of a chance I would say I want to be a princess when I grow up, if someone asked me. <laughs> Basically, I have absolutely no idea what I want to be when I grow up. I have different priorities than other people. I don't really see school as something as important as it is. I want to go to college, but I don't know which one or what I'm going to major in. Maybe I just don't see it as my main focus. Or maybe I'm just waiting for that thing that will make sense for me to do for the rest of my life. I do not know what I want to do at all with my career, but I have some ideas of what I want to do with my life. I want to be able to tell people lots of stories when I'm older about the crazy or amazing things that I have done. Earlier this year, I went to Germany, and there are so many experiences I had there I will never forget. Nothing compares to not sleeping for 24 hours and then you try to buy food, but then your debit card doesn't work. And then the woman who is trying to tell you how to fix the problem doesn't speak English. At the time, all I felt was pure terror, and there's a possibility I started to cry. But now, <laughs> I find that experience to be absolutely hilarious. Stories like these will be the ones I will tell my grandchildren. I want to be remembered as someone who wasn't afraid to live, I don't want to sit on the couch all day and watch TV, which I do quite a lot of. I want to leave an impact. I don't want to die and have made the world uglier. I want to leave people smiling. Maybe I can actually be a princess. I could go down to Disney World, apply for a princess job, and make little children happy. <laughs> that idea might be a little out there but it would 100% make my life full of joy. 
So going back to what I said in the beginning, maybe I do have somewhat of an idea of what I want to do with my life, whether that is go to Disney and actually be a princess or something else. I don't want to be afraid to do what makes me happy. I just want to try and be a little ball of happiness. My life is going to be amazing. I can feel it. Good morning, everybody. When um, Ken invited me to um, come up here and speak uh, for someone who is in the fifth decade of life, which is a 40-something, it made me realize something again. And uh, I first had this realization when I was turning about 40. And uh, I noticed when I was having interactions with people that were younger than me that they would... uh, respond with this word, sir. <laughs> and, and, it, and it took me aback because the situation had changed. I was always the person who was speaking to a, a gentleman uh, who was older than me, and I would refer to them as sir. So what that made me realize is that I had officially become a middle-aged man. When I was in my 20s, 20 years ago, Thinking about meeting a middle-aged man meant that this was somebody who had more responsibilities, who had children, and was basically a boring person. Now that I'm in my 40s and I live, I'm living it, I have more responsibilities. I have a child. And, yeah, I can say I'm a more boring person. But it's so much more than that. There's so much more depth to my being than, than when I was younger and it's simply come about through having more experiences. And one of the ways that, that I feel like I have developed wisdom has um, come through a, a price. It seems like there's a price that we have to pay for, for some of the things that really mean a lot to us. And it happened to me, and it's happened to a lot of people that I know my age, is that by the time that we get to our 40s, it seems like we've had some kind of crisis that just pulls the rug out from underneath of us or the ground uh, falls away from us, so you're actually groundless. Um, it could be health problems. Uh, it can be financial problems, uh, work problems, relationship problems. Um, for me, it was a divorce. And while I was going through it, all I can remember was Nobody can help me with this. And it was just such a disconcerting, disconcerting feeling. Um, and one of the, once I got through it, one of the, uh, the metaphors uh, that I drew from it is a, um, a sailor in a ship leaving port. Um, and for this metaphor to work, you have to think of it before all of the modern navigational devices that we have today. Um, when, when a sailor leaves port, even once they go out to sea, there's, there's still some safety uh, because they can still see the land. And they're still tethered to the, to the land. So if anything happens, they know how to, how to get back. But if the sailor continues on the journey, at some point the, the land drops over the horizon and there's only the sea around. And then... What, what direction do you go? And that's how I felt like in, in that situation, that, that there was no way that I could navigate this, uh, what I was going through uh, with what I had previously known. And 
um, sailors long ago would navigate by the stars. So for them, it was using something greater outside of them to navigate their way through this process. For me, it wasn't a, a process of uh, something greater outside. It actually was something greater within. And it was, it was actually taking the time to still myself and to take each, each day and just be quiet with myself and, and let the, the chatter and all the anxiety drop away. And that small voice deep down inside would, would whisper to me, you're okay. You're okay. And I would just keep going back to that and back to that. And as every experience in life happens, it passes. And what, what I took away from that, that experience is that, one, for to trust my own inner voice, but also that, that everything is temporary. And, and knowing that, it's, it's one thing to, to read it in a book, to read it in a book of, of Buddhism or Eastern spirituality, that, that everything is temporary and it passes. But not until you go through that experience and once you've passed through it do you realize that, yes, it does, it does pass and that everything is, is temporary. And what I took away from that is actually um, I have to make a confession that I've heard this poem before, but I really never paid attention to it until I had to start thinking about what I was going to say. And I read it carefully, and I already had some ideas formulated in my head what I was going to say. But then when I started reading the poem, I thought, oh, Mary Oliver just stole what I was going to say. And there's, there's, this, there's this one line in it. It's, it's that I do know how to pay attention. And in this one wild and precious life that I have, I want to pay more and more attention to life. Um, and what that means is watching the, the leaves fall from the trees as the wind gusts through them. Uh, it's turning off the TV so that I can play a game and be engaged with my daughter rather than wanting to, to watch a football game. Uh, it's those things that, uh, that make life precious and that, that our life isn't in our past but our future, but it's each moment that unfolds. Thanks. Apparently today I'm the terminal generation. <laughs> I never expected all this so soon. Here it is. It's autumn and I'm in the autumn of my life. In five days, I'm going to be 64 years old. And within the last five years, I've entered a new decade. I've seen three sons get married. I've become a grandmother. John and I have married. We've bought and sold houses. <laughs> I've gotten a great promotion at work. I've lost both my parents, and now I'm retired. And so this particular assignment from Ken today about my wild and precious life comes at a really good time because due to my genetic inheritance, I have 20 to 30 years dangling out in front of me if I'm lucky. And that's really a lifetime yet to work with. There's a phrase called less is more, and most people have heard it in relation to the architects Mies van der Rohe and also to Buckminster Fuller. But it was also used by the poet Robert Browning in writing a poem about the painter Andrea del Sarto. And in it, del Sarto talks to his wife, and he talks about having given up the most important commission of his life. And some say in doing that for her, he missed his true calling. 
So if you will allow me some poetic license to bend this phrase a little bit, I'd like to address how less is more has played itself out in the meaning of my life and has flagged up what is truly important to me. In the 60s, I totally devoured the works of Rachel Carson, whose credit is being the founder of contemporary environmental movement. And in the 70s, I was truly turned on by the Earth Day, the first Earth Day, and everything that meant. And their motto should have been, less is more. Because in leaving a smaller footprint on the Earth, there are so many more resources for everyone else. And I jumped on that bandwagon, and I decided to do my small part and I got rid of white toilet paper. Remember how we used to have yellow, green, and blue, and all those other colored toilet papers? Yeah, well, I got rid of the white toilet paper, and I turned down my thermostat, and I drove my car less. And I was part of a professional video organization, and I wrote the script for a video that was used by a lot of community uh, organizations in the Delaware Valley to teach recycling. And some years later, I took it a step further and I stopped eating meat. And while I can never be a vegan because pizza and ice cream are central to my diet, <laughs> I decided that by eating no meat or less meat, that it was an ethical stance for me, really, and not so much one of, of diet. But I was against cruelty to animals, and it also was my way of saying that if less grain were diverted for the production of cattle, that more grain could feed the people of the world who are starving. And so I saw less is more very much in that. And for me, in embracing Unitarian Universalism around the same time, it spelled out the seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of existence for which we are all a part. In another part of my life, when I look at charity, less is more, I very much embrace the fact that we give to the clinic in Phoenixville because for me, like many of you, I write my checks to some of the large charities after I vet them for efficiency. But nothing beats bypassing all the infrastructure and operational costs of getting our money directly to a place where we know that by the very next day that money is doing good. So again, less bureaucracy is more for everybody else. In my professional life, less is more has taught me a really valuable lesson. My job experiences have encompassed academia and corporate. And I can remember my early days in running a video studio at a small university. I felt undervalued and certainly underpaid, and I would compare my job to that of my friends. And I would bemoan the fact that they had more. They had more prestige, they had more challenges, they had more opportunities, and certainly they had more money. And then one day, I heard that a colleague of mine had terminal lung cancer, and she was going to leave behind a husband and two children. And she was released from the hospital and sent home for hospice care. And the president of our university visited her and came back and said, Marion, Jane has asked that you come and visit her, and by the way, bring your video equipment, because she wants you to interview her. And her legacy is to leave a program that is going to educate other cancer victims as to what hospice will mean to them. And so I went, and I had a couple difficult hours of shooting, and she died that evening. She used all her strength to produce that last statement. And I couldn't touch it for three months because it was just too precious. And I finally reviewed the footage, and I wove together her story. And it was used for families, and it was also used by hospitals who helped to educate physicians to sensitize them to what families were going through. And so what I came to realize 
was that even though later I earned promotions and I made good money, I attained the more that I once longed for but never felt a sense of satisfaction, that I once longed for but I never felt the sense of satisfaction and connectedness that I felt back when I thought I had so much less until I had the opportunity to give so much more. Less is more has touched me in the creative side of my life as well. I love black and white photography. The splash of colors don't draw me in. They're so obvious. I like the black and white where they invite me in to look for metaphor and meaning. It's a lesson that I've learned to apply to other aspects of my life as well. And I'm so drawn to macro photography, you know, where you have a special lens and you just concentrate on one small part of what's in front of you and you leave out all the complexity. Because for me, it's a microcosm of life. And it fills me with awe and wonder and makes me think of the vastness of God's creation. And less is more has played out in my spiritual life. I was raised a Roman Catholic and I was a Roman Catholic until my early 20s. But in the 20s, needing le I wanted less so that I could get more. I wanted less dogma, less hierarchy. I wanted less guilt. And the more I wanted was respect for the honesty of my search for meaning in my life and my quest for the spirit within me. More encouragement to grow the gifts that I had and to share them. And as the Wellspring core relief states, more acknowledgement of the many streams and many paths of grace and wisdom upon which to explore my faith. And less is more is also what silent retreats are all about for me, because I come here to services and springboards to build a basis of knowledge and wisdom. But the less of silence is one of the ways in which that foundation has allowed the spirit to reveal itself within me. And so I am here on the cusp of a new phase of my life, and I'm searching for what it is I need to do next. And I've indulged in watercolor, and I happily sit next to 19- and 20-year-olds in my elementary Italian class, and it's such fun. But what will I do to sustain me now? How can my talents serve? And what have I learned about my responses to life experiences to position myself for the road ahead of me? Well, I've learned that I prefer to work in simplicity, and that it's important for me to have close, frequent, and personal contacts with those that I wish to help. I like to see the results of my labors, and I'm not happy to be a small part of a large, wasteful, bureaucratic institution. I've learned to put competitiveness behind me because I know my own worth, and I'm holding it deep inside of me now. I do not need to show it in external ways, I have learned that I don't have to make a big splash. I'm very happy to find fulfillment in creating a few meaningful ripples that will touch a few lives but make a very positive influence. Thank you. Would you join your heart with mine in the spirit of prayer, please? God of gratitude, may we behold and open our hearts to all that we have heard today, to the happiness and the suffering, to the celebration and the struggle. May we open our hearts to these lives, to the wisdom that they have chosen to share with us, and may we be blessed by it. But let's not have it stop there. 
Let us take the questions at the heart of our very lives as seriously and as wonderfully as has been presented to us today. May we ask ourselves this day and every day, because it's never fully finished giving the answer, what will we do with this one wild and precious life that we have been given? May we learn to savor and to share and to know and to pay attention to and to remain open to all that is within us and around us. May we know that the meaning of this holiday, this holy day coming up this week, it is a verb. May we live this day in thanksgiving. May we live the next day in thanksgiving. May our life be an offering of gratitude and service and love and compassion. May we open to the blessings of each and every one of our lives. Amen.